This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Hello, everyone. I'm Brian Jones, Associate Director of Education at the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture. And I'm thrilled to welcome you to this event produced by Haymarket Books, co-sponsored by the Schomburg Center and the Abolitionist Teaching Network. Tonight, our topic is Organizing for Educational Justice Chicago Style, Ballots, Books, and Beyond. We're going to look at dynamic developments in grassroots activism in schools and classrooms and outside of them, and what parents, teachers, and students who are not in Chicago can learn from Chicago. Shouldering the heavy load of repping Chicago tonight are three fabulous speakers. Caleb Ottman, creative director and producer, educator, writer, scholar, community organizer, and political strategist. Welcome, Caleb. Stacey Davis-Gates, the current vice president of the Chicago Teachers Union. Welcome. And is he here yet? Dave Stovall, professor in the Department of Black Studies and the Department of Criminology, Law, and Justice at University of Illinois at Chicago. Uh, And co-hosting this discussion with me is the always brilliant Bettina Love, an award-winning author and Athletic Association Endowed Professor at the University of Georgia. Welcome, everybody, and welcome, Bettina. Thank you so much, Brian. It is wonderful to be with you all. Um, Thank you all at home who are joining us. We know that these are trying times. We're in a pandemic. But what we also know is that when this pandemic is over, whenever this pandemic is over, there has to be a future for us, a black future for us, a Latinx future for us, a future built on justice. And so tonight, what we want to do is think about what that future looks like and use Chicago as a model for those strategies, approaches and wins. How do we fight for educational justice? How do we fight for justice in ways in which that matter to our communities? So tonight we are so delighted to have three amazing Chicagoans who do this work in the streets, who do this work in school, and who do this work for us. And we hope that you take the strategies that you learn tonight and apply them to your own communities to disrupt, to abolish, and to fight wherever you are. And so I think we should get started. We got some great questions. Um, you know anything about Brian Jones? Uh, he is the question man. He gets it going. Um, So I'm also just very honored to be with you tonight, Brian, and co-hosting with you. Um, Abolitionist Teacher Network is so honored to be in this space with Sean Burke and Haymarket Books. So the first question will always go to the youth. Caleb, we're so excited to have you. So please, if you can just get us started telling us about who you are, the work that you do, and how did you get involved in this work, particularly as such a young person? Word. Thank you all for having me. Thank you uh, to Haymarket for inviting me. Um, It's an honor to be um, on this panel with such dope folk. Um, My name is Caleb Altman. I am an organizer based out of the west side of Chicago, 
born and raised. Uh, I am a student and a scholar. I am a baby of the movement for Black Lives. Uh, it literally birthed me um, in my political consciousness. Um, so I started organizing back in 2014. I was 12 years old. Um, and this was during the first iteration of the um, Black Lives Matter campaign or movement. And it was when uh, this movement was uh, called um, terrorist organization. It was called uh, something that would just be a moment. It was called something that was too radical and too uh, um, separated from the context of now. And um, we've learned that that's not the case and that the Black Lives Matter movement has really um, channeled uh, the demands of young people and young people of color and young black people and young queer black women in particular um, all across the country. So I started this work through that, um, getting involved with uh, Village Leadership Academy. Um, I'm a graduate there, uh, where it's a social justice-based school in Chicago where the foundation is uh, black consciousness, uh, social justice, liberation theory and practices. Um, and grassroots campaign. So yeah, that's how I started um, this work. Thank you so much, Caleb. Stacy. Hey, thank you for having me. I'm very glad to be here. This is a dope panel. Um, I don't know. I kind of got pushed into this, right? Um, I'm a high school history teacher and um, I just wanted to make the world a little better by, you know, providing some Black history, some world history to students in CPS. And Arnie Duncan came through and shut us down. And um, I never like felt such um, dissonance um, from what I was hearing and from what I was experiencing and couldn't settle that. And um, I eventually found others who were having a very similar experience because they were shutting us down, us school communities um, across Chicago. And um, we we started to, you know, believe that we could actually throw some elbows, um, take over our union um, so the union could do that work um, because it was institutional and um, school communities should be protected. And um, here we are um, some years later um, fighting for it with our union, um, redefining actually what union um what union is and who union is in Chicago. Um, we believe our members are also the community. We believe our members are also our students and their families. And um, we have been um, expanding the definition of bargaining um, to include the common good because we're common good practitioners. Oh, thank you so much for that. I mean, I was so inspired the last strike you all had and parents were like, strike. Like, go ahead, do it. I mean, that support just inspired me in so many different ways and made me think very differently about unions. That's someone's from New York. Um, thank you so much for that. My brother from another mother. What's up, Dave? Tell us, how did you get started? How did you start doing this work? How did we get Dave Stovall? Man, yo, thank y'all so much for having me. It's so good to see folks and be in y'all company. And to everybody watching, I hope your families are safe. Um... Well, I got started, I always give credit to my grandmother and parents for having just what my grandmother would refer to as black books in the house, right? So literally just being able to look, look on the bookshelf and be like, oh, look, that's blackness. What, let's, let's, read, let's read that. 
And she had a book, my grandmother had a book that was edited by Toni Morrison called The Black Book, right? So literally just looking at The Black Book and really kind of making some connections. I didn't know it just yet, but then I really came to know it in high school by way of the homie Marcus Murray. And I always have to shout Marcus Murray and Courtney Smith out. Marcus Murray was my chemistry lab partner. And one day in chemistry, we were sitting down and we had our little book propped up and he leaned over to me and he said, look, man, you notice some bullshit, right? And I was like, true. All right. So he said, look, this is what you need to be reading. So Murray gave me a copy of the selected speeches of Malcolm X. So I was reading Message to the Grassroots, Ballad of the Bullet, um, the fight against white supremacy. So I'm, I'm reading all this and I'm just like, oh, okay, this is the connection to my grandmother's house, right? This is the connection to the crib. And then a year later, my homegirl Courtney was like, look, you, we need a black studies class. It's a ton of black students here. We ain't got nothing to talk about us. Let's go to the principal. We about to get a black studies class. You like to run your mouth a lot come to the meeting, we finna make it happen. And I'm like, okay, word, all right. So I actually was part of developing a black studies class at my high school that I was actually never allowed to take because I graduated. So it allowed me to see what it means to do work that I may not see, right? But will always be beneficial for folks. So that led me down a path. When I got to college, I actually, in addition to being a bunch of, being in a bunch of fights when I got down to college thinking I'm just trying to do Chicago stuff on white people's campus. So I go down there, I'm fighting, doing all types of stuff. But right before the, right before school started, I was on a protest on the president's lawn, right? Ironically, with the creators of Caleb's school, right? So we all went to undergrad together, right? In terms of how that connection. So from that space, it allowed me to see from the block to my grandmother's house to college, what these connections meant. And then always from there, I was looking for a space to try to make sense of what I saw to be happening and then join forces with the folks who were working to change the condition. That's amazing. That's amazing. Thank you for those stories. I just want to tell a quick story, which is that Bettina and I <coughs> did an event together in June. And then we were trying to figure out how do we follow up? How do we do something that you know will, will, will be useful to, to folks? And coming upon this election, we thought, you know what? This is a long struggle. It's not just about this election. It's about what, every, what people have been doing, what people are going to keep doing. And when we were throwing out names of people and things that we wanted to highlight, we kept coming back to Chicago. It seemed like it was all the people we wanted to put together were Chicago people. So how do you explain? So from the outside, it seems like, wow, there's something really going on on different layers and different levels of Chicago. There's the youth. There's the teachers. What's the you know secret sauce, if you will? What is going on? How do you explain the flowering of activism on on many different layers right now in Chicago? I'll start with you, Stacey. The pain and the oppression, I think, is what triggers it. <clears throat> um, I wish I could say that it was something um, about the hope and the joy. We find it, but I think it's about the pain and the oppression. My my turn was about being told that I was a failure as an educator. 
and that the school community that I was a part of also felt. But also I'm in a neighborhood with vacant lots. I'm in a neighborhood experiencing, you know, high unemployment, double digit unemployment levels. I'm in a neighborhood um, that has been clearly disinvested in for generations, but they assign blame to the very thing that they have decided that we weren't going to fund decided that we were not going to put investment and care and love and support and resources in. And so it wasn't because I wanted to just like fight or just be obstinate. Although I, 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 my mother would say that that's just a kind of a part of my DNA. Um, but it was the oppression. It was the pain. It was the backing into a corner. Um, politics, leadership in Chicago will push you into a corner and you will have two choices. You can fold or you can fight. And I think that that's where um, my interaction in this comes from. And Caleb, how do you see it? How do you understand the, the strength of Chicago organizing right now? I think it's the young people. I think it's the, the constant um, revamping of methodologies and practices and and processes that just truly is inspiring as a young person to see some of the work that we were doing, we couldn't do, or we weren't able to do four years ago is now been implemented by a young folk who are two times younger, like than the, the folks that were doing it in 2014. So like, that's really important. And I, I think that is just in our blood. When you trace the lineage of specifically black people and working class people in Chicago, um, you see that lineage from the South, right? You see this escape of, of plunder and slavery and Jim Crow and um, theft to run to the North to be met by similar agents of violence. So through that, it's like, oh, we didn't leave the South to come to the North to face the same thing. So I think it grows out of young people's uh, renewed vision for liberation, and it comes out of the lineage, or as um, folks say, Sankofa, the going back and retrieving of what um, one has forgotten. Um, and I think that's the process that young folks are committed to in this city. How do you see it, Dave? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, in terms of it, what uh, what Stacey and Caleb said, I agree wholeheartedly. I would add women to that equation in terms of young folks, right? So really understanding the role of women historically in movement building, right? And then just returning, it's this moment, right? So Chicago has had these moments, right? If we go back to Ida B. Wells, right, in terms of doing her work here in Chicago, right? If we go back, look, Stacey, I'm going to take it back. Let's go back to Lucy Parsons, right? We got to say her name and really understand what that labor struggle really is, right? So Lucy Parkins led the Haymarket struggle, right? To where we first saw police organize itself in a city against working folks, right? So I think that con that continuation of that legacy, right? We got to talk about Harold Washington, right? And really understand what the organizing that was done to bring Harold Washington to the deck, right? Now, you know, some of, some of the audience might claim Obama, but Obama had to learn from Harold before he could get it right, 
right? So this thing around really putting that in context. And I think Chicago has always been immersed in a fight, right? You're going to fight to live, right? You're going to fight to make sure that folks get what they need. You're going to fight because it ain't coming from nowhere else, right? It is not coming if you are not willing to bang out for that thing that you need, right? And it's a it's a way that people have, it's in our blood, it's in our spirit, because like Caleb said, when we were met with that, with that kind of resistance by whites in Chicago when we landed, we already said we knew what we know what it is. So now that we know what it is, here's what we're going to do. And now we're at this moment where people have begun to rise up and connect to those histories that we now know to be real in allowing us to think about our worlds differently. So I would definitely put that in the gaze of women and young folks who have been able to rise up historically. And now this is another moment that's a continuation of that history that we've had here. Oh, Dave, you teed up my next question perfectly. Perfectly, because as someone who has studied justice, studied Black feminism, studied abolition, I don't exist without Chicago. Because I don't exist without the work of Barbara Ramsey. I don't exist without the work of Kathy Cohen. I don't exist without the work of Beth Ritchie. I don't exist without the work of Charlene Carruthers. I mean, y'all got all the heavy hitters and then Stacey Davis Gates. So it's like, how, how does a place when you when I read like Beth Ritchie's works and she talks about imprison nation, right? This idea that black women not being able to have these conversations in these spaces. And then here in Chicago, with the brainchild of black feminist radical movement, queer black feminist ideas at the helm of everything, right? So you don't get Black Youth 100 Project without Kathy Cohen. Like it's so much about how we think about movements right now that the world is thinking about that comes out of the intellectual scholarship of Chicago, the on the ground scholarship that impacts the intellectual scholarship. There's such a communal experience that is happening between the scholarship, the ivory tower, the scholarship, the on the ground, the political movements, the young people and engineered by those black women. So tell us like, what is it like being in these spaces and learning from these individuals and what they've given you and the playbook that they've given us. And I'll start with you, Stacey. Look, I don't get a voice. You know, you can go to Lucy, you can go to Ida, you can go to Jackie Vaughn, um, at Karen Lewis. Um, there is a muscle for black women in Chicago to lead. There is a muscle for black women in Chicago to have voice. What all of the women that you named have in common is that they lead from a very principled space of coalition and community. And I think that that is important, especially in this moment to name the type of black female leadership that is necessary because these hashtags trust black women, not all of them. So we have to also name the ones that stand in the tradition in the light of liberation, of self-determination, of clarity of purpose, right? You can have a black woman lead, 
but where is she leading us? You can have a black woman lead, but what are the principles and the values that undergird that leadership? Be clear about that because we've had a mayor ride in on the work of all of those women that you named without producing the results that those women were able to till for her to be in the position that she's in now. So having some clarity of that and also having some connection to movement, like who sent you, who your people, what, what have you produced? And being able to grapple with that and see that in, in, in the filter of liberation, in the filter of who gets what and how. I think those are important um, because neoliberals will co-opt Black women leadership to use this for our vote, to use this for our voice, to use this for our pain, and then turn right back around and make it more painful, right? <laughs> and that's what we'll be faced with after this election, is that we'll go all in, we'll stroll to the poll, Right. We'll figure out how to be there because we recognize how to look. We can survive and we can put other people's needs before our own. And then we are left figuring it out for ourselves. That being said, name your black woman leadership like you did, because that's going to continue to be important. But then also begin to clarify the values and the principles that le- that provide that leadership and the coalition that they originate. I don't want you if you ain't came with someone else because you don't understand how we get there together. I mean, you, you just gave a sermon. You gave the word. You dropped the mic. I mean, if, if we didn't have another hour, I would just say, everybody go home. <laughs> what she just said and then get to work. But I, say that for me one more time. You said Chicago has the muscle. We we've there are black women who've been doing this work, and and I think Brian said this, and and Dave said this is that black women have had an opportunity to always lead, like Ella, right? But haven't always had the opportunity to be it, to hold the mic. And sometimes we don't even want the mic. But we've always been there. We've always provided the infrastructure. We've always been able to see around corners and see everyone else because that is the position that we often find ourselves in, which is why we are able to lead in this moment. It is important, though, and I and I think I'm going to say this over and over again. Who sent you? Who are you with? And why are you here? And what do you intend for us? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, that's, like, those pronouns are important. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, thank you. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. Dave, you want to follow up? I mean, look, the first thing I thought about when I heard Stacey talking was like, look, we're talking about a city where you would see Gwendolyn Brooks in the street. Mm. Right. Just in the street. Right. Literally like no high, no high siding. Gwendolyn Brooks walking down 53rd and my pops fanboying, boying. Right. 
Like literally like, yo, do you know, like literally I was probably about seven years old. Wendelin Brooks walks past us. First thing he says to me, do you know who this is? And I was like, no. no. And he was like, look, all I need you to understand is Gwendolyn Brooks came to my school in third grade and she read, we real cool. Right. And I was like, damn. Right. right? And, and the, the reverence he had for her. Right. So being able to understand because Gwendolyn Brooks was going to ask you, who sent you? Where do you come from? What are you here to do? Right. That's a Chicago question because that's a life or death question here. Right. Because if you if you sent by the ops, we making sure you ain't getting out. Right. So now when you when you say those things, it's reflective of what this movement means. Right. It's reflective of the work that has been infiltrated, that has been in that has been impacted in this particular way. Right. So it really allows us to understand when Fred Hampton and Mark Clark were executed in their home. It was a fear of the state on their bodies. It was the fear of the state to say, look, when these folks start to organize, if they get it right or if they get it together, there is nothing we can do to stop them. So now here in this moment, as people begin to organize yet again, you see a mayor who is much more concerned with the potential votes of her white constituents than she is with engaging young folks on the streets, in the blocks, who are demanding of her to defund the police and to engage in a project of abolition because we know that more cops in schools and more cops will not free us or do right by us. Right. So I think that particular being clear about that struggle allows us to see not only where it is that we're from, but the responsibility that comes with it. Right. And I think that's the heaviest thing. Our responsibility in recognizing what does it mean to do the work here and to do it, as Stacy says, in a way that is responsible and accountable. I love that because what you both are talking about that's so important is that, yes, black women leadership is important. It is freeing. It is loving. It will hold communities accountable. But everybody that they put up in front of us is not the folks we should be following. So the folks we should be following, you have to say, well, who sent you? Who are your people? Who do you represent? Those are the black women. And so I think once you're making that clear message that folks understand this is not just about a black woman and a black body. It's about the politics and the humanity and the love and the courage and the kindness and her people who are with her, not behind her, with her. And we have to be lifting those voices up. So as you are watching at home, those folks are in your community. Those women are in your community. They doing the work. You're not listening. And not being heard because they're there. They're always there. So, Caleb, tell us. I mean, because I know you 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 know some of these folks. You study with some of these folks. You've grown up with some of these folks. Yeah, yeah. Some of these folks are my homies. And I like I would not be here if it wasn't for black women. When you talk about the founders of Village Leadership Academy, those are black women who were educators who saw a, a need and 
the community for quality education for black children um, that was grounded in their awareness and their consciousness. So that is one part of it. But then my organizing experience, another woman, Paige May from Chicago, if you don't know that name, you should definitely know that name. We talk about Charlene and Miriam, but Paige, her ability to take the theory and the practice and then also centering young people with Asada's daughters and then having this environmental uh, politic as well is something that like she literally taught me how to be an organizer. And I, I, I would just add that like the black feminist politics saved me as a black man. Right. So like this idea that like uh, black feminism only saves black women. No, this put in the black woman who has all constantly shown up for black people, all people um, who has constantly been the site of violence, both by community members and the states. Um, when you understand that literally their survival in this society um, is a contradiction um, to everything that uh, this society has put forth. And when we live in that, these are the women that are gonna teach us how to navigate the climate crisis. These are the women that are uh, navigating uh, gun violence issues in our communities. And uh, these are the women that are doing domestic violence work. Um, And so across the board, black women have saved me and have saved my idea of what a man should be and what an ally should be to this movement and understanding that like, I am not free until my mother is free. I am not free until my sisters are free. And that includes trans women or women that happens to be trans. Um, so yeah, those, those are just how I see the world. And I, I'm deeply grateful to black women, black queer women, um, black non-binary and films um, in this city um, and the work and the scholarship that they have put forth um, for us to digest um, and to learn from. I just want to thank you all so much. This is this is really I'm learning so much from this conversation. And I really hope that I just can't. I'm already excited to to spread the link for this after it's over. <laughs> so many people who need to see this and hear your words. Thank you. Um, OK, I want to I want to push you all to connect some dots for us. And I'm going to come to you last with this one, Stacey, uh, as VP of the Chicago Teachers Union. But the 2012 Chicago Teachers Union strike was huge for me as a teacher. I was a I was an elementary school teacher at the time. And I guess I want you all to talk about the role of the teachers union and the strike. Of political activism in Chicago. Help us understand inside the school and outside the school the school, the strike, the union, how it's all connected and what role the strike has played in uh, in developing this broader movement. Um, we had some interference on the line there. I don't I don't know if everyone could hear that question, but basically I want you all to talk about this, the, the Chicago Teachers Union, the strike, uh, if you remember that far back, and just the role of, of CTU and its activism in the broader movement. Um, let's, Dave, can we start with you? Can folks hear me all right? Yeah, I can hear you. Yep, perfect. So one of the things that comes out, and please, Stacey, uh, correct me if I'm messing this up. So one of the things that I remember is 
a cadre of folks who refer to themselves at this time as the caucus of rank and file educators. This was, as I found it, to be the renegade faction of CTU. And in that renegade faction, Karen Lewis and a couple other folks were literally having kitchen table meetings. So one of my colleagues, Pauline Lippman, actually, Karen Lewis told this story to us when you and I, Brian, were at the New York Collective of Radical Educators meeting in 2013. She talked about being at a kitchen table and they read Pedagogy of the Oppressed, High Stakes Education, and uh, The History of Education of Blacks in the South by James Anderson, right? So they were reading these three books and they were like, look, What are we going to do? In fact, my partner was actually at some of those meetings. Right. So they're reading these three books and they're saying, "Okay, look, the traditional role of large labor has only been to defend and protect salaries and employment. There's something else here and there's something else we can learn here from larger struggles and historical struggles around collective struggle. And in that learning, they said, the first question that came out was, well, what are schools connected to, right? So how are schools connected to housing, healthcare, education, employment, right? So now when they started to ask this question, the caucus, I remember going to, Stacey, I went to one of the first core conferences at King High School. And I remember being at the core conference and I'm like, oh, okay, it's about to be on and popping because they were there was another set of closures that they were proposing at this time. And what core did that I thought was critically important, they they killed the idea of operating insularly. Right. They said, look, we're going to take this out to community folks. We're going to take this to spaces. So myself and Bill Ayers, we would always crack this joke. It was like, man, I just ran into two students, two teachers and a firefighter reading a contract, reading the teacher contract under a tree. Right. So this thing around like, damn, everybody had a con- everybody had a copy of the contract. Right. It was this popular education around what this meant so everybody would be on board. But more importantly, everybody knew that the shift was now going to be away from the protection of salaries, away from the protection of employment, and now to be a justice-centered union. It changed the whole dynamic. It changed how we looked at things and something else. So when they got into power and won the slate, as the caucus of rank and file educators, one of the first things they did, instead of relying solely on shop stewards, they hired a bunch of community organizers as staff to continue the message, right? So now it just wasn't this thing that was happening happenstance or for this one moment of the contract, but it was literally saying, we are a union that is committed to justice and Good teaching conditions are good working conditions. And these spaces are the ones that we now are connected to. So it's no longer just about our jobs, but what are we connected to? And now, so so if you look at the reports coming out of the Quest Center, you see all this stuff around gentrification and unemployment. You see this stuff around disinvestment. No, the Quest Center did not used to do that work. 
right? So shout to the homies, Carol Kareff, Sarah Watchout, and all the folks who are doing that work. So again, this, and, and it's important to communicate to your viewers that this is a seismic shift. It had never been done before. And more importantly, and I'll end with this, when the strike happened, remember, Marion Wright Edelman's son came to Chicago and created an organization and actually shifted Illinois law that said that 75% of your membership had to approve a strike. Not 75% of the people who voted, 75% of the membership. So in 2012, Chicago Teachers Union had 93% of the membership who voted to now move toward a justice-centered organization, right? So this changed the whole dynamic, but it was only because of the existing work in Chicago that you could have a table meeting where you are reading Pedagogy of the Oppressed, High Stakes Education, and the History of Education of Blacks in the South, right? So really putting that in context, that was huge for us because for many Black folks, CTU had been antagonistic until somebody like Jackie Vaughn came and shifted things and was still met with a bunch of hostility by white members, right? So again, this shift is critical. And I apologize in advance, Stacey, if I've messed up for the historical record, right? But I'll stop there. Let's go to Stacey last on this. Caleb, how do you see the teachers union and the, and the teachers union? <laughs> I don't think I have enough experience or I've done enough sitting in history to be able to follow up on in either of their accounts. But I would say as a young person who was, um, I still remember the diet hunger strike. I still remember seeing uh, members, elders from COCO, um, uh, folks that I was told they were they were handing the torch to us, right? Like they were, they were like getting ready to sit down and have elders literally go days, months without, I don't know the exact uh, number of days, but a long time without food um, and only surviving some on juice and water. It was really inspiring. And then to see that they actually saved the school and to see that, um, the plan that was so radical for the school, like this technology centric that was meeting the environment, that was meeting social justice. It was something that was incredibly inspiring um, to see that and, and to, to go to some of the actions um, on the South side in support of that was amazing. Um, and then like, as I got older in my organizing like experience um, to go and read uh, Eve Ewan's book, uh, Ghost in the Schoolyard, about uh, the closing of the schools and how this was such a phenomenon that was bigger than me. And I was literally living in it. And to see that I wasn't a part of uh, uh, CPS during that time, I was at Village Leadership Academy, but to see teachers from all different type of school districts come out and support educators and, and principals um, say, oh no, we're not going to school because C, uh, CPS is not going to school. So like that was something that was uh, super powerful as well. Um, so yeah, I don't have much of the chronological history and, uh, and understanding of that, but to, to, to witness, it definitely shifted how young people um, 
asserted their power or understood uh, about power and the fact that these educators were fighting for us um, and were fighting for uh, our communities and something bigger than us, it, it really showed the the importance of a intergenerational movement and also a movement that is grounded in um, different politics. It can't just be about education, right? Education is linked to housing. It is linked to mental health. It is linked to food deserts. It is linked to gentrification. It is linked to uh, black feminism, right? Like all of these things sit at the intersections of each other so that we have to begin, begin to imagine um, schooling and the schooling as like this this organism of the world, right? So many times uh, educators and people think that young people show up to school and they just come in with books and pencils and they don't come in with none of the trauma outside of the classroom. So if we can shift how we think about schools and how we handle the trauma that young people carry in their book bags every single day, then in that we are essentially dealing with the social paradigms of our society. Thank you. Thank you both for those responses. Uh, I want to turn it to you now, Stacy, to tell us from the inside about, you know, how, what this has meant to you and what you, what you think, you know, connect the dots for us uh, between CORE and CTU and schools and the city. So I'm a founding member of CORE, right? Um, at the same time, I was started having babies and, you know, got married and started having babies. So, you know, that is a very concentrated, like part of my time, my personal timeline. Um, CORE said that our union should be fighting for the justice um, of education in Chicago. It, I, I remember my first interaction with the union was um, a lobby trip to Springfield. And um, we met at the merchandise mart because that's where our offices were at the time. And um, there was a limousine with the leaders of the union. And then there was a, a charter bus. It was nice for the rest of us. And I was confused, right? I was just confused. And so I spent that entire day not angry, but just confused, you know? And, you know, you get this sheet of what you're supposed to go down there and lobby for. And I know where I work. And, you know, it just, it was just a confusing experience for me. And then Arnie, come, Arnie Duncan comes to our school and he says he's shutting us down. And then we go into this, like, organizing stands. We're going to save our school, not. Um, and so we go to these board meetings. No one's listening to you. You know, it's not participatory. And then you see all of the folks in the community come. And then I'm like, what well, I don't, is that right? Is that what people want? It's just, it was just all such an education. And I felt like we were missing a power pole. Like somehow there was something else that we were missing and it was our union. That's what we were missing, right? We were missing something institutional, something funded. Look, don't, don't sleep on funding. Don't sleep on the ability to resource the movement, right? And so 
it was our it was our union because Coco was there, BPNC was there, and Lasse was there, Pilsen Alliance was there, Pauline was there, Rico was there. You know, there were all of these people who were already there and tuned up on this. We joined them because the community was already there. They had already recognized the injustice. Remember, the Mid-South plan hit the Bronzeville area first, and Coco had been going back and forth on that. So it wasn't that we figured it out, is that we joined, right? We joined in coalition and had enough sense to ask questions and had enough sense to, you know, be a part, had enough sense to take some direction and leadership as well. So those are the things that I think informed how we behave now is that we didn't invent it, but we understood the power of it. And then one critical thing that I think helped me was, and I can't remember the name of the book, but when I first started working at CTU, it wasn't all of the other like social, racial justice part of it. It was how to be in coalition. It was how to, you know, uh, be in coalition because coalition is not easy. We throw it around, but you get mad. You don't like each other. It don't make sense. It, it, it takes too long. You know, it's all of these things. You know what I mean? And it's the only way, right? It is the only way that we get to where we are supposed to get. Now, I do still think we need to short circuit some of this. That's just my own personal. And that's the only way we get there. So 2012, I think, was about an announcement. It was an announcement to the world that we had the ability to um, create, provide, push through a message that centered racial justice. I think that was what it was. We said apartheid schools. We said black and brown. We said we live in a city that has stolen money from taxpayers on the south side and the west side and constructed an entire downtown, right? The cynical nature of how the city operates, right? You take a TIF, tax incremental financing, that was created by Harold Washington to build up, right, the capital of neighborhoods. And you port that money out of those neighborhoods and you build skyscrapers on LaSalle Street, which is our financial district, right? Meanwhile, you have schools that don't have everything that they need to have. Meanwhile, you laying off teachers. Meanwhile, you're privatizing schools, firing every black person that's in that school, hiring a younger, whiter, more transient um, um, workforce, right? You are destroying the black middle class. So this whole concept that Caleb talked about, that school is a center. And you can see gentrification. You can see racism. You can see, you can see all of the isms happen that are connected. You know, we often talk about the school plan in Chicago wrongly. It wasn't about the schools, it's about the land, right? You shut the schools down, you shut it down. It's about reclaiming that space and pushing out folks. Like we are, we are still in the middle of the largest exodus of black people from this city right now. Because we've torn down the, we've allowed the, the public housing to be torn down. Right now, they are going to close hospitals 
hospitals on the south side of Chicago in the middle of a pandemic and black people are dying three to one to white counterparts of COVID-19 and they're about to shut a hospital down on the south side of Chicago with the black mayor. So 2012 was about the amplification of coalition. It was about the fight. It was about getting out that corner, right? You can either fold or you can fight. 12 was about getting out of that corner and, and demonstrating power and coalition and saying that there is another way and that people are going to have to either fight us or they're going to have to give us what we are, 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 are taking or move out of the way. So I think that was 12. And, um, you know, we've had different iterations of this fight because in 13, Rom said 150 schools. You, you got to just clarify for the audience, Rom Emanuel and oh, everybody know that closing tell you right now. You know what I'm saying? Like this man closed down tons of schools on black children and is on ABC talking politics. Nowhere else in this world can you do harm to black people and get a raise. You know, you think about that. Think about that. He on TV right now telling us something about America, who we need to vote for and what it looked like. But he caused trauma and harm to black people and he gets a raise. Like, like anyway, next question. <laughs> Let me just say you all are putting on a master class tonight. A master class of not only organizing, coalition building, but also the critical thought it takes to do this work, the critical lens it takes to do this work, and the courage it takes to do this work, and to speak unapologetically about what's happening to us. And so I'm just, I'm in awe of the masterclass y'all are putting on. And to the folks who are watching at home, please, we have people right now who are ready to pull your questions from the YouTube chat and that we have a document to see them. So if you have questions for Stacey, for Caleb, for the panel, for Dave, please put those questions in the YouTube chat box. And then those questions will get filtered to myself and Brian, and we'll be asking those questions shortly for the Q&A. So if you have questions, please put them in the YouTube chat box, and then those questions get to us. And then when we have the Q&A portion, We'll, have, we'll, we'll try our best to ask as many questions as we can. Um, so the little bit of time we have left, I think we have time for maybe one or two questions. Okay, but I really want to go to you first and just talk about and tell us about the youth organizing, the youth groups on the ground that are pushing and doing this work alongside the union, alongside uh, all these other mechanisms, all these other organizations. Tell us about the youth organizations in Chicago that we should know about, should learn about, and whatever you want to tell us about them and their trajectory and their goals and their missions. Yeah, word. Young folk are really doing the thing right now in Chicago and have been doing it for a minute. Um, shout out Asada's Daughters. Uh, shout out Good Kids Mad City. Uh, shout out Black Rising. Uh, shout out Fuerte. Um, shout out many young independent organizers who don't have an organizing home, but that move around in all of these different spaces and contribute so much to them. Um, shout out the Let Us Breathe Collective. Um, shout out BYP 100. Um, 
shout out uh, Chicago Votes. These are all young people across the spectrum that are doing amazing work. Um, shout out Bella Boz. Her name doesn't get said enough in this city. Um, a big sister. Um, and I would say that for youth organizing in this city, um, it has become ingrained in young people to, to fight for something in the city. You, it's so many issues, whether it be food deserts, whether it be gun violence, whether it be police violence, whether it be educational apartheid or medical apartheid, young people see these issues. They experience these issues. They saw their mothers uh, uh, die of COVID. They saw their fathers being incarcerated. They, they, they feel these walls being built around them. And the only way young folks have bridged a new light is through fight and resistance. So they continue to do that um, and they will continue to do that. And I'm proud to be in relationship with some of these people, donate to them, give them your money, give us your money. With this, this fight, people always donate money in times of rebellion, but it is the, the what is the quote? It's like a, a shield is never uh, built in a time of war, it's built in a time of peace, right? This, these young people are organized in 365 days a year, not just when George Floyd has a knee on his neck and we see the video, right? Not just when we learn about Breonna Taylor's name. These young people have been doing the work for years and it's time for us to put some respect on their names. It's time for us to start funding them. It's time for us to uh, reimagine this nonprofit industrial complex, um, one that seeks to give uh, grants to so many uh, Chicago nonprofits, but then pass young folk up like me who've been doing the work for literally years and grant makers not wanting to give us money. It is about that as well that continues to sustain the work. Um, it is about the mental health of young people. Do you know that the Chicago Police Department is arresting 18-year-olds, protesting and charging them with felonies? This, like, like, we have to put this in, in, like, that is fascism. That is this state that is literally doling out violence on the ch same children it, it has failed and it has sworn to protect, right? So, like, Miracle Boyd, a young organizer with Good Kids Mad City, had her teeth knocked out this summer. Understand that like this system, this state, this surveillance um, industry that governments are complacent in is, is literally haunting the psyche and the bodies of young organizers in this city. Yes, yes. Um, thank you, Caleb, for that. I'm going to go to you next, uh, Stacey, about the young folk. Before I do that, thank you for shouting out Bella Barnes. Thank you for shouting out. We got to talk about my little sister, FM Supreme, Chicago, and the work of E-Viewing. Just amazing, amazing folks. Um, Dave, going to you about how do you see the youth playing in this role? How do you see some of the youth organizations that you're inspired by and the work that they're doing? Man, I mean, the thing that I am the most impressed with and the thing that I can say publicly that I've learned from young people is the capacity to demand joy. Right. And I say that 
in the realest sense because I thought more of my work as like a fight in a phone booth, right? It's like you you in here, you only one of us getting out. Like this is what's going down, and man, I'm ready. I'm ready to go, man. Nobody is going to defeat me in this space, right? Until that type of mentality does two things: it in it disables your capacity to see, it disables your capacity to hear, and it disables your capacity to pay attention to yourself to the point where I was killing myself physically. Like literally doctors telling me that I have all these preconditions for really bad health problems, right? And then I see young folks in the street and shout to Caleb and all the fam because the illest, one of the illest protests I have seen in my life was 3,000 young folks this summer in the front of Lori Lightfoot's house, the mayor of Chicago, having a party, right? And I was, I was just like, yo, this is the coldest ever. And all it was was a demand for joy, right? And coming up, I'll be like, man, joy, love, what you mean? This struggle, right? This, this, we, we gotta get, we gotta get out. If you ain't bleeding, if you ain't bleeding out your eyes, what are you doing, right? So that thing around really, revisiting that and, and looking at young folks and saying, ah, oh, they own to something here. And something you told me a long time ago, Bettina, and I didn't, make, I didn't make the connection until you said it. Kendrick Lamar's song, All Right, is a freedom song. And when, we act, when I actually saw that in terms of thinking about how it was being used and how those freedom songs are connected because just a couple of days ago, I heard an old gospel spiritual that said, ain't no danger in my God's waters. <laughs> and I'm just like, damn. And it says, and it said, all you got to do is get on board. <laughs> I'm like, man. Right. So when you, when you think about like what, like what that means, man, ain't no danger. <laughs> right. So if, if you have made a conscious decision to love, it ain't no danger. Right. There's nothing that you have to worry about. Right. The only thing you got to worry about is breaking your chains. Right. So I attribute that entirely to young folks and my partner, Irene, for making me understand a commitment to love and joy because I didn't have those commitments. I thought my commitment was to struggle and I thought struggle was only pain and desolation. Right. So this thing around really figuring out what does it mean to love, to love in a struggle, right? And I think that was a, that was a tough lesson for me, but I deeply credit young folks mm -hmm. and my partner for putting me onto that. Cause man, look, when I saw that party, 3000 young folks getting it in, I was like, <laughs> man, look, this, this, it ain't nothing you can do to stop this, <laughs> right? I mean, to the point where people are coming out their houses, not calling the police, but joining the party, <laughs> right? I'm like, man, this, this is a whole nother level, right? So this, you think it's a block party, a celebration, ain't no permit. We in the street doing it. But I think that that is reflective of that commitment to joy that I, I definitely credit young folks for reminding me of and challenging me to engage.
Ooh, thank you, Dave, for that. For, for, not only for that, but for that vulnerability. Because oh. that's also a part of the work is to be vulnerable. That's right. And to heal and to find that love and joy through vulnerability in community. So I, I thank you for sharing that. Uh, whew, Stacey. Ain't nothing else to say. I mean, <laughs> there's nothing else to say. I mean, listen, I spent all summer um, praying for protection for all of the young organizers out here, but also being filled with being filled with their hope, their courage, and their joy. Um, Their freedom, their acceptance of each other, their courage, the love that they communicate to one another and to us, like love, like they love us. They really love us. They really love us. They love us even if we don't love them. Think about it, trans, queer. Think about the lack of acceptance that our institutions provide that our family structures shun. And they out here gladiating for us because they love us. Yeah, I am humbled. That's what the word is, humbled by their leadership, their sacrifice. I am encouraged and challenged to, um, to be better, to lead better, to reflect better, um, I, I am a better person because of their leadership right now. I am more thoughtful. This is what I'm saying about like being a teacher in this moment. I would be a better classroom teacher in this moment. I'm a better mother in this moment. I am more aware of their hearts in this moment. You know, the way that they talk about toxic parenting, the toxicity of our family structures and being more aware and available to examine my practice. It's like, damn, I wish I was here when I first started teaching because I would have gotten a lesson. No, real talk, right? I go back to the classroom now, I'm better than I ever was when I was there already because they have given a great deal of reflection to what it feels like to be a black child, a black student, a black person. You know, I think of Keith Beauclair right now. I shouldn't have probably called his whole name, but I think of him right now in my classroom for a lot of different reasons. And, and, and but I don't just think about him. I think about the missed opportunities because I did not have capacity and understanding of who that child was when he was in front of me and what he could, what I was supposed to offer and couldn't in support and protection of his, of who that child was, that person, that teenager was in that moment. And I can't help but think that the example and the leadership that the young, that the black organizers are doing in this moment would have made me better. And we have to connect protests to pedagogy, to practice. We have to, because if you pay attention to all of what they've learned, you know, this is why I'm so irritated by this term learning loss in this moment. Think about what you are experiencing for young folks in this moment. Learning loss where? Learning loss who? They are leading, revolutionizing, changing, reflecting, 
they're making educators who are paying attention change practice. They really are. You ain't talking about anti-racist practice in the classroom because of a professional development. You talking about that because of the struggle in the streets. Say that. Say that. No. Yes. Yes. Brian, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no, no. This Oof. All right. I think uh, for time we should, uh, there's so much more that I want to ask. Um, but for time, I think we should, we should start letting some of these uh, questions from the audience come in. I'm going to, let me read a couple. Let me read like two and then, uh, you know, people could just go around. You know, one thing we always get in these panels, um, uh, something that's along the lines of like, how do I even get started? Um, you know, people are always asking that, like, if I'm not in a place where, I'm riding a wave and there's lots of movement around me. How do I get started? Petrina asks, uh, writes, I am a school social worker in a school district in Georgia, Cobb County, that does not acknowledge that Black Lives Matter. Where do I even begin to impact change here? I feel like I am underwater. And then I want to add another one just to give you a layer to work with. Um, Sherry asks, can you talk about the calls for defunding the police? and the connection with schools and the role of unions, especially public sector unions. So any thoughts on either or both of those? Uh, start with you, Dave. Yeah, I, I'll take the piece on, you know, the sister in Cobb County. And man, one loves you for being in Cobb County off top because it's, it's real down there. You're in a right to work state and it's a lot of stuff happening. One of the things that I think is critically important that I'm seeing people do is just make the claim. This is the moment for bravery, right? To just be saying, look, I got a bunch of black babies in my classroom in front of my face every day. If I am not willing to say to them that they are matter, they matter to me and that they are valuable. I don't know what my job is here. Right. I mean, literally saying that and don't fe don't fear them firing you because they can't fucking replace you now. Right. They, they their hand, their hands are on the they, they can't have their hands on the chicken switch anymore. Right. And then when you say that in this way, now it challenges them. And then it's sort of because this is what they're going to say. Right. We, we know this one. Right. Well, what about all lives mattering? There has never been a moment in the history of the United States where your white life has not mattered and been the center of the universe of analysis, understanding, pedagogy, and engagement. Now, what are we willing to do? I got black babies in front of my face who are crying their eyes out because they're not sure when that squad car comes if they won't get their brains blown out for absolutely no reason. So now when I say their lives matter and when I connect that to a larger political struggle, I am saying they are not alone. Right. And all you need is one other person to join forces with you. Not the person who says it in secret, not the person who hides behind the podium and then peeks out and whispers to you. But the person who says, OK, this is what it is. Right. Because if they want to be data informed, then damn it, the data is in front of our face. 
And now what are we willing to say? And I think that becomes important. And it's not to admonish anyone's struggle, but it's to understand that, look, we got to be clear about this. And if we are not clear about this, we will be victimized by the distractions like a question about all lives mattering. So now we have to that clarity, I think, is key in this because trust. And I think it's important to say as soon as you make the claim about anything, justice, they are about to come. You should expect them. Right. And when they come to your front door. You say, what took you so long? Shit. I was, <laughs> I was, I was waiting, homie. Oh, okay. Now y'all, now y'all on deck. Okay. Now, let's rap about it. Right. So I think this thing around really being clear about that. And this is the moment to stand up for them because we just, we can't leave those young folks hanging. Right. And now I think when we are that brave, now it changes up what they're willing to engage. But we got we to gotta be that brave in that moment, right? In terms of not having those young folks sit in that peril and that precarity, right? That they are unsure of, right? So this thing around really, I think, I think it's, this is the moment of all moments to step up, but we have to, we have to keep that in our, in our ideology and our understanding every day, right? But, uh, it, and it's going to be a fight, but Trust that you are not alone, but the way that you make yourself heard is the understanding that you're not alone when the people begin to join you when you've made that claim. Everybody ain't scared, but they just got to see one person step up. And now when they see that one person step up, they'll be willing to do it too and trust them. Wow. Thank you. Caleb. Yeah, word. I'm going to take it from the perspective of a young person who has sat in classrooms with educators who claim Black Lives Matter. But then when my Black life was at stake, they failed me. Um, I'm talking to the Chicago public teachers who will go on Twitter and tweet anti-racist curriculum, but then go and say problematic stuff to young black people. I'm talking to the educators, black and white, who continue to understand our pain and our hurt and and, and everything that is wrong with this system. And they understand, they understand, they get us, but outside of that classroom, in the face of the principal, in the face of the security guards who we're saying that they shouldn't have, or the SROs who we say that shouldn't be in schools, in the face of all of these power dynamics, they fall silent. I think though, you said, one thing you said was, I feel like I'm underwater. And I think about my ancestors, if they were in that water, all they would have done is fight, right? That's the only option we have. And that fighting is not a superficial one. It is not one that say, oh, I am an ally with you, or I am for you, or reach out to me when you need this, but it's actively disrupting the system 
of white supremacy, of racialized capitalism, of, of gendered violence, when it shows up in your classroom, when it shows up from your boss, when it shows up from your fellow educator and colleague, when it shows up from a student upon another student, how are you forging those connections? How are you building with those young folk? I think that's the most important thing that young people need. We don't need folks to be talking about anti-racist theory anymore or practice. We need folks to be implementing it. We need white teachers to sit down. We need the, the 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 destruction of the teacher-student dynamic. Let's talk about that. Y'all want to talk about social justice. You can't talk about social justice if you ain't going to talk about the power dynamic teachers have over students and and principals have over teachers and and (laughs) all of those. So like social justice literally calls us into the work of reshaping ourselves. Abolition calls us into a continuous practice of being in community and coalition with each other, of calling each other in. You can't do that when educators say, I am the educator and you are the student and you sit down and they open the door to their brain and insert the knowledge and you go home and you just leave. You can't do that. You ain't committed to social justice if you ain't trying to lecture your kids and you ain't trying to give students your power, flipping it on its head. Let a student teach for a day. Let them create the curriculum that they want to see. The system is not ready for that. Educators are not ready for that. Thank you. Stacey, how do you see these questions? And especially also if you can speak to the issue of the police, uh, defunding the police. Um, So the issue of the police blew up for us over the summer. Um, because we stood with young people who said that they wanted cops out of CPS. And we have a contingent of our membership that are in relationship um, with um, the police. They're related, they're married, you know, they live in neighborhoods. Like those relationships are close. And a couple of things. One thing is, is that you hear Caleb provide that testimony and you are in relationship with your student. So how can you like do this? You can't. Um, part two of that is the type of teacher you want to be. Many of us are taught through popular culture movies where we fly into a situation and we change it with a composition book. Or we are taught in teacher ed programs to be a missionary and not a revolutionary, right? That's a different way of thinking about it. And we don't get that. And and I'm I'm a part of the we. (laughs) I wanted to do a thing and couldn't figure out how to implement the thing, right? And there's no guide for you in there. There was no mentor to to turn this whole revolutionary thing um, around for me for implementation. Last thing, we made a decision as leaders in this union to say we build power to use it. And we've also made a decision as leaders in this union to 
to lead for the type of world we might not get to live in. And if that means your vote, then okay. Because we are a political space too. People get to vote for me. I will lose votes. And that's okay. That's okay. Because I am still a teacher and I'm going to always be Black. That's it. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Stacey, I'm going to come right back to you. So we have a question about the idea of, you know, how do folks around the country build the type of union that you all have? Not everybody has the leadership that you all have. Not everybody has this, this history that Chicago has. So what are some practical things you would say if you are not happy with your union's leadership or you want your union to be more socially justice focused and have the social justice unionism, you want them to make the connections with the community. You want them to call out the mayor. Like you want them to take these stances. How do people start to engage with unions to do that particular type of work when they don't feel like they have strong um, leaders? Well, we didn't either. And I would posit that America is Chicago. They're dealing with racism. They're dealing with sexism. They're dealing with um, economic injustices. They're dealing with a system that is socialism for the rich. That is not unique to Chicago. That is American. And so you are having those struggles. You just haven't identified your, your tribe, your people in that. And so the best thing that I can say is what was already said. There are already people fighting in your community. Go ask a question and then bring your people with you. Like Jackson Potter, we was in a bar. It was three of us. And then we were at Karen's house. It was eight of us. And then we were over in Pilsen and it was 15 of us. You see what I'm saying? We don't teach history well. I'm a history teacher and we don't teach it well. We don't talk about Dr. King being in the basement of the church and it was only five people. We talk about the March on Washington. We talk about the big demonstrations, but not the parts of the movement that only had 10 of us there. And that those instances were more commonplace than the huge demonstrations. And so if we tell the truth about how movement is built, we're clear. And don't take all of those people all the time because you won't have that. That's number one. Number two, you have to be united on a on a on a platform of values and principles and be OK with disagreement. But be okay with agreement on the things that move you forward. I, I think that's it too. And you got to name names. You got to name the thing that you're trying to change, and you build in. You build in iterations. You ain't gonna win everything in 2012 because we didn't. We and even in 2016 we had to take a step backwards because austerity was kicking us in our ass, right? But we did win because we're still here, right? And so you have to you have to be clear that movement takes a long time. When did the civil rights movement start? Did it start with Rosa or did it start with Emmett Till? Did it start with Ace and Philip Randolph, right? Like, or, or did it start with I Have a Dream? 
like people have these different instances of what, like the modern day civil rights movement and then the span of that. So it takes a while. It's not always huge, but it has a nucleus. And that nucleus has to be built around a coalition of community and, and those who have grounding and legitimacy and, and, and render yourself accountable. Render yourself accountable. Thank you for that. I want to ask a question to each person on the panel, and I'll start with you, Dave. What is what is one win that you want people to know about Chicago as far as its organizing, the unions, its politics? What what is a, what is a win that you want people to say? This is a, this is something you should study. You something you should look up. Look at the names. Look at how they did it. What 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 is one thing you would say? is a win that you want people to take away from tonight? I think, well, I, I'm already violating, I'm already violating the question. So I'm a, I'm a bring, I'm gonna bring two to the fold. One being the victory and struggle of the 2012 strike and the continuance of that. And then second, for folks who are unaware nationally, the John Burge torture memorial is critically important for folks to understand, right? So John Burge was a police sergeant out of Area 2, was actually in the neighborhood that I grew up in. So many of the folks who were tortured under John Burge and his team were actually my neighbors, right? I knew some, I knew some of these folks, right? So one of the things around the John Burge torture memorial was the idea that a collective of people stood in the face of the Chicago Police Department, demanded justice and actually repatriation, right? So that victory and to the point, and even with a lot of chagrin, to the point that the John Burge torture cases are required curriculum for grades seven through 12 in Chicago public schools. Right. I think that that is critically important. Now, of course, some people refuse to do it because of the relationships that uh, Stacy mentioned earlier. But at the same time, it will not be erased from history. What happened to those folks in those years from someone like John Burge? The most important thing to understand was and I agree, Caleb, that a lot of the stuff is watered down. But I think the most important thing to understand is that in that space, we are not talking about the acts of an individual. We are talking about a system that sanctioned those acts as normal, right, and good. Please read Clint Taylor's book, The Torture Machine, right? It's an excellent piece around understanding this, but that is a victory that I think nationally we don't talk about as much, but it was huge for us because that reparations decision should be a pole mark for folks across the country who have experienced police torture in this way, right? So a group of folks in Chicago were brutalized, tortured, damn near murdered, and stood collectively and got reparations, right? So this thing around our abolition dreams, 
are never futile, right? They take work and they take commitment. Thank you so much for that, Dave. Caleb? Yeah, I think that I'm going to take the Buy Anita campaign. I think that that, that campaign, I'm going to take two. I, I, I'm going to take the Buy Anita campaign and I'm going to take Freedom Square, the, uh, the occupation of a site outside of uh, Holman Square, which is an off-book police torture site that John Burge use right like he used that site as well and that site is still up today and the letters brief collective uh, org that i'm a part of we set shop outside of it for 50 days and said oh we're about to reimagine we're about to use this physical space to literally reimagine a world where we don't need that when we're a world where society is not dependent it doesn't give I've been thinking about this idea of implied consent and what does that mean in, in terms of racism and white supremacy? Budgets are implied consent where taxpayers allow their money to go. Um, I'm also thinking about our silence, right? So we're not going to allow for you all to kill us like this and we're going to provide food. We're going to provide books. We're going to provide political education and arts and education uh, resources. That was so that set the frame for what we're seeing now, this divest, reinvest package, right? This understanding of we need to defund the police because we have other priorities that have been underfunded, right? So that that literally just like changed my life and being in community with folks on the West side was just amazing. But then back to the Buy Anita campaign, if you don't know who Anita Alvarez was um, or is, she's still alive. Um, she was the uh, Cook County State's Attorney and the people ran a campaign. <laughs> this campaign was brutal, y'all. Let me tell you some of the tactics we use for this campaign. Mind you, I was a, a part of a gap year during this time. So I literally took out of, uh, out of school to help this campaign. We, we did banner drops over uh, uh, expressways with different languages saying, bye, Anita, right? We showed... We showed up to her campaign stops. We had people go into her campaign stops, take pictures next to Anita Alvarez, holding up signs saying by Anita in their middle finger, right? So this is the understanding of like, this is what it's gonna take. You gotta get down and dirty if you want to win for your people because they are doing the same things uh, with us. And the by Anita campaign just, it, it nationwide, it set a precedence that of this idea of a progressive prosecutor. And we can talk about that like more, which I don't believe is a contradiction in terms, but it set forth that the prosecutor's office is going to have to be accountable to somebody, right? Um, Kim Fox talks about how she ran on her campaign without the work of organizers saying, by Anita, Kim Fox would not be there. And that's just, that's just a fact. That's just a fact that it is because of black queer women showing up in winter, doing action after action, following Anita Alvarez and her campaign, wherever they're going, doing banner drops, doing train takeovers with young people passing out literature up and down uh, the uh, blue line. Right. So these are the tactics that were used. And it, it set a precedent that Chicago is a place where a new 
birth is rising, right? When you talk about the aldermen uh, and alder women coming in, um, we have democratic socialists coming in, right? Like it is not, it is changing slowly, right? I would even contribute the resign Rom campaign. Rom Emanuel could definitely wanted to run for another term. He knew that like, if it wasn't for the, the organized efforts of young black people, young queer folks on the ground, young women on the ground, we may still be under a Rahm administration. And I, like, I'm sorry to say that, but like, it is because of young black people in the organizing scene of Chicago that literally changed the trajectory, uh, trajectory of, of our city. And it's more shifting to be done. Lori Lifer, we're coming for you. Like, look at us. Like, we, like I, I don't like. We're coming for you. We're coming for you. Do your research. You know, you know, you've seen us. You know, you know the history. You know the history. So we don't. We're running out of time, but I definitely want Stacy for you to close us out. I mean, what are some wins um, that we should take from Chicago? I think it's cumulative. I can't name any one thing. I think it's cumulative. I think the win is that you have an organized presence in Chicago that can continue to fight the power and to deliver on its promise of equity and justice. That's the win. Um, you know, it's the sum of, you know, of all the parts. I think I'm saying that right. And um, yeah, you know, I, I, it's, you know, how, because if you look at the Rakia Boyle, if you look at No Cop Academy, if you look at um, Freedom Square, if you look at the Burge curriculum, if you look at 12, if you look at the Diet Hunger Strike, um, you know, if you look at 16, the one day strike that brought a lot of different constituencies together. And then you look at 19 and the delivery of the thing that we've been fighting for since we were, you know, in Pilsen and probably in a condemned building at that point, you know, having, you know, these clandestine meetings to, you know, get to do this. So it's it's all of it. And, and the fact that you got to think about your moves in Chicago, if it's to hurt people, if it's to, you know, exclude and oppress, because there is an organized presence. Wow. Thank you. I'm going to let Brian close it. But I just want to say it was an honor and a privilege to be with you all tonight. And thank you for having me. And thank you for taking up this space. So it was an honor. Masterclass. Take it away, Bettina. This was incredible. Thank you, Caleb, Dave, Stacy, and always, Bettina, a pleasure and an honor to be with you all. Thank you so much. And thank you to Haymarket Books um, and to our co-sponsors, Abolitionist Teaching Network and the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture. Stay safe, stay safe, everybody. Spread this link to everybody who didn't watch it. Uh, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.